You're listening to the Jake and the Fat Man Podcast. This is how we do it. Da, 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 da. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Jake and the Fat Man podcast. I'm your co-host, Matt the Fat Man Bowers, joined alongside my co-host, Jake Klum. Well, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got an interesting guest for you today. We've got a feed specialist from one of the top feed companies in the country. Stay tuned. We've got some great information for you. Jake, buddy old pal, back in the saddle here. Yeah, been a little bit. It's been a few weeks. Uh, we're going to get back into these folks. It's that time of year. We're going to start cranking these out, hopefully, and uh, uh, we're going to be hitting the show circuit and uh, some sales here coming up. Yeah, we're booked for uh, the show in Richmond held by Willoughby's. Yeah, it's a new sale this yeah, year. February. Yep, it's held in February out there at Richmond, um, where they... Uh, the Midwest Elite used to be held yes. years ago. Great facilities. Uh, we hope everybody comes out uh, out to that. But we got a special guest tonight. Like I said, uh, we've got uh, one of the top uh, feed companies, show feed companies in the country. We've got one of their feed specialists in here, uh, Mr. Eric King. Eric resides here in Ohio. We're going to let him tell you a little bit about himself. Eric, we got you on the line. How are we doing, Eric? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. Uh, uh, you guys uh, have some great products there, uh, uh, not only in the uh, the sheep. We, we typically talk about sheep on here, but uh, uh, we're welcome. We're open to talk about all species of uh, livestock and the, and the feed you guys are producing and everything. So uh, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, ironically, as, as I start my story, I was I tell people I was born into agriculture, uh, literally um, 12 days late in a June afternoon, uh, my my dad was still planting beans uh, late or mid June uh, that year because it was a a very trying year, much like any. And uh, my mom said, "Hey, it's time to go to the hospital. Let's go." And he said, "That's great. We need to stop at the parts store, at the John Deere implement store, and get some parts because I I had a breakdown." And so he got some parts on the way to the hospital, which was just around the corner. And he took a nap while I was born, for the most part. And uh, I was born and went back to the field and, and uh, kept after it. So that's just what we do in, in agricultural life. But uh, that's just, a, 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 as I call myself, being born into agriculture. That's the way it was. And, and we lived every day on, on being part of the farm and grew up showing uh, through the years of 4-H. My sister and I exhibited a lot of projects uh, at, uh, at the Seneca County Fair here in Kiffin, uh, but then at the state level and, and even the national level all across the country. So, um that was uh, a very unique childhood growing up. We showed uh, mainly cattle, but showed sheep every year, um, showed hogs one year, and uh, just got to experience a lot of different livestock from a lot of friends and, and family that we met uh, throughout the years of showing. Eric, so, Eric you still uh, reside in Seneca County now? I do. I do. I uh, I live just south of Tiffin, uh, which is uh, all about... Uh, I live about five miles south of Tiffin, I guess. Uh, I live uh, about 10 miles from where I grew up uh, currently, and um, both my, my parents still uh, live there where they grew up or, or where they where I grew up, and my wife's parents live about 10 minutes south of us, so it's a, a very nice location for, for our family to to go back and forth with, with both sides of our family. Yeah, you're close to family there on both sides there, and that, that's great. Uh, now, Seneca County there, Tiffin area, do you guys consider that Northwest Ohio, or are we still talking maybe just a little bit North Central? We still say Northwest. Uh, sometimes you get caught up in that. I, I kind of say Northwest, but North Central almost at, at that point. Uh, you know, we still catch the Toledo News, so I always say Northwest at that point. Yeah. Are you pretty close to McCutcheonville then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. My son uh, grew up playing baseball in McCutcheonville, or okay. Scotch as we call it, okay. uh, around here. okay. Yeah, you were yes. saying 10 miles south of Tiffin. I was like, man, that's about got to be right there. Yeah. Uh, so you yes. you talked about being born into agriculture. Uh, there's a lot of 
what I would say diversified farms still there in that Seneca County area that still mm-hmm. have some livestock and row crop along with it. Uh, is that what you guys grew up on or was your projects, was your projects just purchase projects and that was the only time you had livestock was for your projects or how was nope, that? Uh, my, my, yeah, we actually started, uh, my dad had a registered Angus herd, uh, that he started when he was in 4-H because uh, his uncle essentially milked cows down the road from from my grandparents up in Fremont. And uh, he decided he didn't want to be any part of milking cows, <laughs> so he wanted to go buy uh, some Angus cattle. And, and believe it or not, the first heifer he bought uh, turned out to be a dwarf. <laughs> and uh, so, but they started it, uh, my dad and, and his brother uh, uh, showed uh, Angus cattle growing up, and then they just kept growing from there, and my grandparents were heavily involved in the Angus Association at the state and national level, and uh, my parents still are, my sister was, um, so we showed a lot of stuff that we raised early on, and we showed some local stuff from uh, 4-H Advisor, and uh, as we went through our career, we bought a few animals. Uh, I bought my only champion steer I ever showed was from Bob Eggle and his brother Bill down in South Vienna, and uh, bought a few cattle from Leroy Billman over the years. If everybody knows Leroy, he's lost his arm in, in 84, actually, when that'd been the year I was born. But uh, great individual to know and, and know his story and things like that. So I grew up and spent many days with him and, and understanding that. And that guy could do a lot more with one arm than most people can do with two any day of the week. Um, so then, and, and as we, we continued to, to grow and progress, we bought a few heifers at the end of our career that we had some great success with. And we started to raise some that had some great success as well. So it was kind of neat uh, to continue to add to that herd. But uh, yeah, my, uh, we essentially showed what we had and then bought a few, but uh, yeah, we had, uh, I think my dad and, and mom had about 250, 300 acres of, of row crops that uh, they owned, but then uh, farm as well with grandparents and, and aunt and uncle and things like that over the years. Okay. To this day, is there still row cropping and cattle involved with the yep. King Farm? Yep, okay. yep. Uh, okay. My my parents still row crop and, and grain and, and things like that, and, and I get to help with that when I can, and my son takes great pride in, in helping with all of that. Uh, they've got more cows over there than they've ever had. Um, I want to say there's 60 or 70 cows or something like that around there, I feel like, all the time, but there's there's more ground being farmed and, and things like that, and everybody working full-time job, everybody kind of helps when they can and, and does their part, but uh, yeah, that uh, essentially helped me helped me know people and, and get opportunities and, and uh, helped me take steps to where I am today. So... I kind of bounce around. Matt's more of a timeline guy, but I'm, I kind of bounce <laughs> around. Uh, if you could describe what 16, 17-year-old Eric King was like, his interest, uh, if it was sports or FFA, 4-H, you've talked a little bit about what we just assume it's helping out on the farm when you could or mm-hmm. when Dad said you had to. Either way, <laughs> however you want yeah. to word that. But if you yeah, could just so, give us a little rundown of your late high school years. Yeah. So uh, I, I tried to play some sports in high school. And I say try because if, if anybody knew me in high school, I was a lot smaller than I am now. Um, and that is size-wise because when I was a freshman, I was 5'220 pounds and I tried to play football. Uh, I might have had the biggest heart, but I just didn't take up much space on the field. And um, so I, I tried to play football for a couple of years and, and I enjoyed baseball, but it always got in the way of, of showing in the summer and things like that. So uh, 16, 17 year old me decided uh, to not play football my senior year and things like that. And I was heavily involved in, in FFA at our, at our chapter level. Um, didn't really go much beyond that, uh, but just enjoyed it. I, I worked down the road growing up in high school. We had a golf course down the road that I spent uh, 40 to 50 hours a week working at. Um, and a lot of times that would be driving a tractor there or driving something there because we had to hay to make down the road afterwards or we had something to do afterwards or, or things like that. And uh, 
but it was just always, uh, you know, projects came first. It was chores first, then go work and, and come back home and do more chores or, or more things like that. Uh, 16 and 17 year old me met a, a young girl from Sycamore, which wasn't very far away. And, and we had both had the same interest at that age. And, and we still have the same interest today. And, and, uh, we watched it grow and, and we spent a little time together after hours or in the barn doing chores. And that's just where our love for, for this is continuing for our kids, uh, essentially to where we are today. I wondered about that because you said you like your location, not mm-hmm. not that it's a bad location because I think it's some of the prettiest country in the state. But uh, mm-hmm. I figured you had to end up with a local girl because it would have been hard to bring a big city girl to southern <laughs> Seneca County. Yes, yes. Uh, a lot of people talk about Seneca County being left behind because there is no four-lane highway that runs through Seneca County. So everybody says it gets left behind, but it's a nice peach, nice piece of dirt that gets nurtured by the community that loves it. Uh, and it's kind of quiet and, and nestled in here. And nobody kind of bothers you. It's pretty nice. Yeah, I drive through Seneca County. or we have, I work for Republic Services, so our mm-hmm. landfill is a little bit south of you. But uh, yeah. I think some of that area out there in Sycamore is some the prettiest country there is. You talked about your kids. How old are your kids again? Uh, I've got two kids. Wyatt is uh, 14. He'd be an eighth grader this year, and, and Chloe is 10, and she's a fifth grader. 4-H ages, uh, what, what do we got them showing? Absolutely. Uh, we're, we're very busy and, and showing things. Uh, this year we've got a couple steers in the barn. My son decided to rein in that project and, and kind of get after that. He showed a market heifer last year and, and uh, got along really well at our county level. And uh, so he wanted to step up and show a steer to, at the state level and hopefully beyond. And, and we've got a couple heifers in the barn. Uh, normally we've got a, a barn full of field pigs as well that the kids both exhibit. And, uh, then my daughter's also fallen in love with the goat project mm. after my son took it a year and, and kind of didn't like it. She took the reins of it last year and, and really loves it. So, uh, we are kind of diverse. Goat's a great project for young kids, you know, like, especially at that, uh, that 10 year old age, that's a great project to get them introduced into, uh, 4-H and livestock, but being a younger child, I'm sure she's no stranger to it. You know, with, uh, uh, your boy, you said Wyatt there, he's, uh, uh, you know, she, she, she grew up around it cause he was showing he's older, he's four years older. So, uh, she's no stranger to these projects. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. We, uh, we essentially, get these kids right into it when they were young you know we spent a lot of time in the barn doing different things and, and they just uh, take right hold of it and and take the love for it that we've got so yeah that that goat deal 10 fit i'm gonna say 15 20 years ago i i should have bought every boar goat that i could find because they weren't very expensive but man that thing has blown up to and it, it's not stopped absolutely it just keeps going and it seems like that's <laughs> I don't want to say the secondary project, but you see a lot of the cattle and swine exhibitors floating over to the goats. And I think it's because they're, they're kind of fascinating on how, how much they progress and how quickly they've progressed. Cause a really, really good goat, even two years ago, wouldn't even stay in top five in the class now. Like it's it's crazy yeah, they, they how much they've over changed. The last couple years. Yeah, I think yes. they'll eventually hit a wall somewhere, like all species have, and then they'll just start swerving around. But yeah, there'll be a different trend or a change or a size or a type that'll that'll evolve. But yeah, uh, yeah these guys are just figuring out how to make them better every day. So it's pretty cool. You graduated high school. What high school did you graduate? I actually went to Hopewell Loudon over Hopeful. in Bascom. Uh, okay, yeah. I wondered what that school district would be there. Yeah, uh, I actually grew up uh, in another school district, and and when I was in second grade, we opened enrolled, which was a new thing uh, at that day and age. Yep. And to to a neighboring district, and, and essentially my parents, where they lived, the the back fence row was the line of the school line. And uh, so we opened and rolled there just because it was a bigger class and, and bigger things. But, uh, yeah. Hopewell's a pretty nice up. school. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So after, after high school graduation, 
did you go into the workforce or college or where did, what yeah. was your next path? So my next path was essentially I went to Ohio State uh, or the Ohio State University, as everybody says, uh, for four years, uh, majoring in animal science and minoring in the ag business. Uh, spent four years there and uh, graduated with a bachelor's degree at, at that in 06 and uh, essentially came back towards home, uh, a little ways from home, but went over to Finley uh, to work for a car dealer essentially at that point in time that had a had a herd of cows that he had just started and, and gotten business with. And I took care of that for about two and a half years hmm. and uh, met a lot of people, did a lot of showing with, with his kids and, and uh, you know, part of the best program and different things like that yeah. and showed at their county level. And then, uh, you know, some opportunities were starting to present themselves, and I decided I probably didn't want to run cows the rest of my young career and, and things. So I started looking, and, and some things changed, and, and the Umberger opportunity come about, about and, uh, and that's kind of how it, it fell into my lap, really. So what is your actual job title there at Umberger? Uh, I mean, if... if I guess there's no official title. I can probably put whatever I need to on my business card, but uh, show feed specialist is, is what it says. Um, but uh, essentially, it's a salesman job. It's uh, it's a little bit of everything job. We wear a lot of hats and different things at, at Umbarger. It's pretty unique. Well, I came up with feed specialist in our intro there. I uh, I just got on the website and looked you up there and seen what it said. It says uh, uh, yeah. new dealer inquiries, sales support, and product knowledge. And see, I would have just off the top of my head been like VP of sales because <laughs> I, I know him as like the contact person for sales Yeah, and dealers. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we like I said, we're, we're a – I mean, truthfully, a small company, so we're very unique. We get to wear a lot of hats and different titles, but uh, there's true really only uh, three or four of us guys that are true salesmen, and uh, we share uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, jobs and different things like that. So there's really nobody that's above anybody or different things like that. Uh, We all pull our weight and do different things at different times. And we all talk a lot, so it's very unique uh, that we all work together and, <laughs> and coincide with each other, and we don't really have a territory or boundaries that we hit. Okay, so tell us a little bit about Umberger. Where is Umberger stationed out of? Where's their home base? Yeah, so now Umberger is in uh, home of Franklin, Indiana, which is just south of Indianapolis, about 20 miles, um, which it just relocated there essentially during covid uh, we moved from what was called Bartersville, uh, which was where the original mill was that started in 1939. Uh, but we moved during COVID to Franklin. Uh, like I said, it was just eight miles move uh, out to the east, essentially off the interstate. Um, and we did that for mainly the purpose of uh, logistics and freight and routing and, and things like that. Because when our trucks hit the road, you only get so many hours of, of drive time and delivery time. And and that eight-mile move saved us 45 minutes of, of drive time, uh, mm-hmm. just back and forth and things like that. Just because and of the access ever, to the four-lane? Yes. Uh, and if you've that. ever been out to the old Bartersville location in the area, uh, that is essentially a sprawling community. Uh, it's tremendous, the amount of growth that they've had out there. The amount of homes that are being built by the day is just astronomical. So uh, we were essentially just being encroached on. We had no room to grow. And so the owners and and team essentially found a place out there and and decided to spread our wings and and give us a little bit more area to work and and room to grow and and things like that. And and the access to the road was a huge thing for us. So is the new facility completely brand new or was it a facility that was you went in and revamped and made work? It or? A, nope, it is 100% bare dirt when we started. They essentially went out and bought 83 acres of bare dirt, uh, essentially just off the interstate. And there was actually only, uh, I want to say west of the interstate, there was some um, gas stations and some different things. And then you get on into Franklin, there was obviously the college and, and different things like that. But if you look to the east, there was really nothing there. Um, and they bought that piece of property, I want to say six years ago at this point now, or five years ago. And, you know, now today there's different warehouses going up. There's different industrial things going up there by the minute you hardly, when you get off the exit, you can't just essentially directly see our mill. Um, but yeah, we started from the ground up ground zero, um, 
like I said, during COVID, they're out there hanging sheets of metal and, and the blowing wind and and uh, all that fun stuff. And those guys that built that mill, uh, hats off to them because they just they worked through all of it and, and kept going. Six foot apart and all. <laughs> yeah. With their mask on. Yep, yep, mask Indiana. on out, out, out in the middle of nowhere, six foot apart, they build her. Indiana yes. wasn't quite as bad as Ohio, but still. Yeah. So that's, that's a pretty large commitment by Umberger to pick up and relocate. Yes. I mean, and I'm sure they spent money on new technologies and stuff to more efficiently help produce. Matt's laughing at me because I always think about my words and I talk like Eeyore. But, uh, so that, uh, but at the end of the day, that's a huge commitment for the Umbarger family to just brand, buy and build brand new. Uh, was there, was there some worries about picking up and relocating? Yeah. Yeah. There's a hundred percent, a lot of worries, especially when, when the day they cancel the state fair and, and different things like that. Um, you know, that's the heat of our season is, is right. during the Midwest there when they did all that stuff. So yeah, we're in, we're in the process of, of building that thing. We're in the process of, of being at max capacity of our old mill. Um, it was something that we knew that needed to be done. Uh, and that family's commitment to this industry, um, nobody will ever know. Um, but, uh, they, they just felt they had to do it. Um, we had to do it for ourselves to be self-sufficient. Uh, at the time of our old mill, we didn't have an, a pellet mill. So we were relying on other companies uh, essentially to make pellets. And if you know, Umbarger, essentially, we want to ensure the quality, the freshness, the everything, uh, from step one to step zero of, of that feed uh, and all the way through that process. And that was just another step in the right direction to be able to do that. Um, so with that, you know, we had to learn how to run a pellet mill and we entrusted a new guy that had never ran a pellet mill uh, essentially to do that. And, and, and Casey's done a great job of, of taking the reins of that thing and, and fine tuning it every day uh, to be able to do that. Um, other new technology, you know, we, in the old mill, we had an old grain cleaner that was uh, 1950s model grain cleaner that uh, most elevators would see. And that thing was is just as great as it was the day it was new. Uh, but we essentially can't buy one of those. We couldn't move that one. So we had to get a new grain cleaner. We had to um, install other automation. And and, uh, and essentially that mill was designed by our fourth generation, our owner. He knew exactly how he wanted it designed. He, know, he knew how, he, how many bins he wanted, knew the conveyors and the way they wanted them to be run. Uh, this feed needs to go to that bin, but yet also be a need to be able to go to the next one. Um, so it was, it was a lot of forethought, a lot of planning, a lot of head scratching, uh, different things like that. And, uh, I'm just amazed that you were able to put it all together. So you said you was hitting your limits at the old, uh, facility. Yeah. What was yeah. the increase from the old facility? Like maybe I don't, I'm just, could you do a hundred tons at the old facility and now you can do X amount of tons or what was the, the growth just in changing yeah. facility? So essentially we had, we had one line over there um, that we could run and, and bag off of. And, uh, and our warehouse just wasn't very big. That was a limit, uh, a limiting factor. And in the summertime you would often drive by and, and people would drive by and there's feed stacks and pallets and stuff sitting outside on the, on the driveway. Uh, and that's just because we didn't have enough space to essentially set that feed to, to be able to put it on a truck. Uh, we only had four semi uh, bays to be able to back trucks in uh, and things like that. And at that point in time, we had oh, probably five or six trucks or seven trucks leaving a day and let alone all the LTL shipments that were going out and different things like that. So we were limited on on space and, and growth and just being able to produce enough. Uh, the guys would stay as late as they needed to every night to, to be able to make the feed that needed to go out. But it was just the fact of having the space to, to get it on a truck in, in timely manner and move that stuff. So when we moved to the new mill, we essentially have two bagging lines uh, with two robots. Uh, they put in essentially... Uh, a system to be able to rotate that feed essentially darn near on a daily basis. Uh, but if not on a, on a couple days basis, uh, they stack feed in on one side and then pull it out from, for outgoing shipments on the other side. 
Um, but now we have essentially 10 semi doors and, and different things like that. And we've really, honestly, truly almost outgrown this facility already. I can believe um, but that. There, <laughs> but there was a little bit of forethought by our ownership uh, when they laid the pad for, for our current warehouse that we have now. They went ahead and laid another pad right beside it for, uh, for expansion if we needed to. And so it, it's laying there. It's it's ready. It just needs concrete and a, a shell put around it, and we have a bigger warehouse tomorrow. So well, that's like anybody that ever builds a barn. Um, they say build it bigger because what you're building is going to be too small. And there's a lot of that's truth right. to that. <laughs> Jake just and, built a new and, barn. He can tell you that. That was exactly what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're very blessed. I mean, there's 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 always something to be thankful for in this business, and. We're always thankful for those customers that keep us going and uh, our dealers out there in the country uh, that do a wonderful job every day fighting for us. And, and we wouldn't have that without all those guys and, and great customers. I'm I, I'm just asking some of the, I don't even know if it's intriguing to other people, but to me it's intriguing. And, and like the warehousing, do you have the, the racking systems where like you can put a semi-load onto the racks from one side of it and then it's on rollers and then you unload it to load the trucks on the other side or is it all floor storage and stacked up on top of each other how how yeah. does that work so we actually we don't have uh, we have some racking in this around the outside for whether it's ingredients or some of our mineral products or different things like that that we inventory and, and stock all the middle of the warehouse uh, is essentially floor stock stuff, and it is stacked essentially two pallets high. And uh, when the feed comes off the line on the west side of the, the warehouse, essentially it dumps right into that warehouse or it's part of the warehouse. Okay. Um, we've got one guy designated to pull that off of the, the robotic stacker every time, and he sticks it on the essentially he comes from in from the, the west side and sets feed in rows, and they make uh, a mark of, of every new row that they start. But then the guys, when they're loading trucks, they'll pull from the east side every time and those rows. And so they're constantly rotating inventory uh, all the time. But, yeah, there's there's no racking in the middle of our mill at this point. Uh, there's been some talk. We've had to rearrange a couple different times. And and as a sales team, as we talk about some new products, they're like, well, we got to make some space for those. So, um yeah, it's it's kind of unique and and like I said, it's all designed by our owner and and he had some forethought to it and and I was talking with the warehouse guys the other day and I said I didn't really see this this working the way it did, but it, it really does work the way you guys do it. So it's it's pretty cool to watch them work. So you bring up new products. Is there any new mm-hmm. products that uh maybe you can't give the name of it, but that you're <laughs> that you're looking at? developing yeah. or that's close yeah, to there's, release there's, there's always there's always some new products in uh in the brainstorm bin essentially and and it's up for discussion anyways uh, and everybody always wants a new product but there's not always a need for it um but yeah there are there are some new products on the horizon um you know not specifically per species by any means but uh we're, we're definitely in talks of, of shooting a few new products out here that are that are warranted by the industry not necessarily just to add another feed uh we want to have a feed with a purpose uh not just to putting a feed out there you don't like selling the product that says it'll do 1800 different things and uh <laughs> it might do half of one yeah, but, if, yeah, if somebody if somebody had that product, man, they'd be all all yeah. in. But yeah. Uh, yeah, there's there's so many different kinds and types, and and everybody sees livestock different, which is is a unique thing in our industry. Um, so we can we can essentially offer those different feeds at all the time, uh, and it fits. Uh, it has a home for a lot of different people in different countries or in different states. So. All right, Eric. So we're talking feed here. So what kind of what what all species does Umbarger make feed for? Uh, so if you've uh, seen our our logo or our slogan, we really like to drive home the drive it, lead it, brace it theme that we started several years ago, um, and that really means uh, drive it as in driving a pig, uh, lead it as in leading a cow, and brace it as in bracing a sheep and a goat. And so we take pride in feeding the four main species uh, of livestock at an elite level, whether that's the national level, the county level, or the state level. So we really focus on those. And, and we still do have a horse feed as well. 
Um, but uh, it's just not very well known and, and we don't have a lot of power behind it, we'll say. So what is your, uh, what's your highest commodity of feed that you guys sell? Uh, well, sheer numbers, uh, cattle eat more feed than any of the other species. So, uh, we are by far a, a cattle species and, uh, I would say that's just because of probably over 30 some years ago when this thing really got the ground running and Humbarger got in the show feed business. Uh, it was the cattle guys that really drove that they wanted this and they needed that. And they came to us and, and they, they wanted our guys to develop that because we had the steam flaker and they wanted to build a ration for, for their cattle. And that's how a lot of these rations started uh, back in the day. And, and some of these rations are still going now. Uh, the breeder growers, the barley bases, the cattle blasters, um, they're still around today. and still very functional, but uh, that's how it all started. So you just popped another question in my head. Mm-hmm. You said get into the show feed. Were they a, what I consider a production feed for like, commercial were, animals before or they were they were essentially a local country elevator uh is what okay. they were uh they were nestled down there south indianapolis and uh um that started in 1939 uh essentially they they had a need in the area and and some guys approached them and they wanted them to start an elevator and so that first generation did and and uh, progressed through the years and and things like that and uh our third generation were essentially two brothers uh, marty and tom umbarger and uh, both still with us and uh, they essentially decided they wanted to get into the niche feed business and that was to make high-end horse feed for all the horse tracks around indianapolis mm-hmm. And so they essentially figured out they wanted to be different and wanted to be unique. And, and they went out West and they seen the steam flaker and they said, man, if we could get that stuff in a bag, um, that'd be just tremendous. And so they figured out how to do it and put the science behind it and the time behind it. And they hired a couple guys by the name of Tom Basie and Fred Taylor and a couple retired guys at the time. And, uh, that were well known in the state for, for having their businesses at the time and different things. And they kind of tweaked and built some of these rations and, and got the ball rolling. And uh, they sold a lot of horse feed around Indianapolis there for many years. But that's, like I said, when when all the other guys, the show guys, found out what they were doing, um, you know, they said, hey, can you make this? Can you do that? Let's do this. And that's where it evolved from there. Okay. I had a question I was kind of sitting on when you are talking about changing feed or or developing a new product for an actual need. What? Mm-hmm. How, how do you approach the ever-changing show market, the the actual show ring, that mm-hmm. they're they're always changing with the trend or whatever? I know you got to stay pretty centered on it because the basic the basic needs are the same, mm-hmm. but over the course of the say decade, your base feed might change a little bit from the mm-hmm. beginning of it to the end of it. How, how do you stay ahead on that? Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're always looking at evolving and, and working with guys in the industry, um, you know, to, to look at those trends and, and see what's changing and things like that. And, and uh, even two weeks ago, I was out at Hoosier beef Congress and just walking the barns and uh, a couple of guys caught me and they're like, Hey, you just walk in the aisles or what are you doing? I said, well, I'm just seeing what we're missing, what we're looking at, what's what's out here, what's not, what we're missing, um, you know, who's who's feeding what. Uh, I like walking down the feed aisles and different things, and uh, and I'll do that at many shows, and and um, so that's why we're always trying to keep ahead of that. But we we rely on guys that are in the industry that are dealers of ours, or feeders of ours, or customers of ours. Uh, we're always just looking to stay ahead of it. Okay. Do you so so you take customer feedback as one of your like leading things? Okay, well maybe we need to change this up a little bit or try a little different ration on it. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah, I mean that, we're we're not change just to change something or, or do right. something different all the time. We're gonna we're gonna sell what we have, um, but if it's warranted enough or we hear it enough times that. Hey, we feel like we've got a hole in our lineup um, that this product will fit or we can do something different. 
then we will do that. Okay. Change out of need and necessity. Yeah. Yes. I, li- I like that approach. I mean, you're always looking for what you're missing, but you're not changing it just to have a change. Yeah. Now, when I got hired several years, uh, many, many years ago, uh, our third generation told me, he said, now, listen, Eric, you're going to sell what we make. And I took that to heart, essentially. We had a core group of rations at that point in time, and, and we're not in the custom feed business. We're in the show feed business. And uh, I essentially did that. We, we sold what we make. But when we have a hole in our lineup or we feel that we're missing something um, and we need to develop something that needs to be unique, we're not going to copy somebody else's or do something uh, just the same as anybody else. Uh, we're going to go after that if we can. I appreciate that. I mean, mm-hmm. from a feeder's perspective. Um, yeah. So what do you – I'm getting off. I bounce. Sorry. Uh, what do you, what do you do in your free time? Like, I know you don't really have free time because you can always be doing something either for your job or your, with your kids or the family farm or what, what's some hobbies that you really enjoy? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there is, there isn't much free time. I spend a lot of different time, obviously with the kids and, and livestock and, and my son has got a a pretty big pumpkin project that we mess with in the fall every year. Uh, kids are in sports, uh, that kind of fun stuff. I just sit on this, our local school board, uh, actually getting off of as well. But, uh, yeah, usually it's uh, life is evolved around a livestock show or something like that or friends or like. Is the uh, pumpkin project an SAE project? For FFA or just the side hustle by itself? Yeah, so, yeah, it's his essentially, uh, his pumpkin project started when he was, uh, I think he was 10 or something like that uh, in in 2020 during the year of COVID. He decided he wanted to do something a little different and and grow some pumpkins. And that started with about a third of an acre. And he's uh, worked his way up to about five acres now. Wow. And uh, kind of a little hustle in the fall. And that's pretty unique. Does he grow any of them jumbo pumpkins? Uh, he's worked on that a couple times. Uh, I want to say two years ago, he had one that was almost 200 pounds. Uh, wow. But that's uh, that's a whole different thing. We he, He'd like to grow one of those big 1,800-pound ones, but <laughs> those, we will those, see. Those things take <laughs> a lot of work. I think, yes. I think those take as much work as like an acre of pumpkins, just those yeah. single pumpkins, because you got to keep the shell moist. And it's, yes, it's, they, there, there's a trick to it. Oh, I've heard a some crazy stories. Like that'll drink a big pumpkin like that'll drink like eighty gallon of water a day. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> I've heard of people like watering them with milk. Yes. And crazy yes. things like that. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. That's not my that's not my <laughs> cup of tea. But I guess if uh, maybe Humburger can come up with some kind of pumpkin feed, some kind of pumpkin <laughs> fertilizer. <laughs> Oh, we feed a lot of livestock that turns into some great fertilizer that works out really nice. Yeah. Yep, so. yep, yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. So yes. as as being in the show feed industry, where do you see it in the next five to ten years? Do you think it just keeps evolving like it has been, kind of staying course, you know, on the route or? Do you see it taking some changes? Yeah, I don't. Uh, you know, as these podcast things started many years ago, everybody asked those questions as well, and you listen to them, and, and you, you don't foresee yourself it, it changing that much more. It can't get that much stronger. Those animals can't sell for that much more every year. But every year we we seem to say that, and we, we, we seem to continue to evolve and adapt. Um, you know, these shows keep getting bigger in different places and different areas of the country. Um, but there also are some, some suffering sometimes at the county level, everything is as strong as it's always been. Um, so it, it, it has to change and evolve a little bit. I think people still want to show livestock at a, at a level, but there's more opportunities to do other things nowadays. So, um, 
we, we've just got to keep these kids interested. And, and that's where I spent a lot of my time of educating kids on, on product knowledge and project knowledge and, and passing that along is because we want this industry to keep going and, and keep feeding it into itself. Um, because if we don't, and these kids don't get excited about going to the barn to work with their livestock projects, uh, essentially a lot of us, we won't have a job or we, we would have to evolve and adapt to a different job. A lot of podcasts ask that question, and mm-hmm. I think uh, nothing I ever heard uh, on any of those podcasts was five years ago. You could have told me that more and more people would be uh, raising these fallborn lambs, and and people would mm-hmm. be showing these lambs that you know that were born in the fall. I, I'd have never believed it. I mean, there was a handful of people doing it, but now everybody's got fall fallborns in their barn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, livestock keeps getting older and older, and and pigs are now being born in December and and November, uh, for showing at our state shows and different things like that. So it it just this industry keeps evolving and changing, um, and and that makes it harder on on a livestock guy that's feeding these things as well too, is because we have to change and adapt to those different genetics uh, that may feed a little slower than they used to. Except for in Ohio, all lambs are born January first. Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got rid of our weight limit at the state fair last year. So I think that you're going to see there's a lot more Ohio breeders that went with the falls. But I, but on yeah, paper, well, January 1st. Yeah. A lot of people are taking those out of the, out of the rule books because you can't prove it. But, right. And, and that's one thing that I was going to ask about because I'm a firm believer in what Wade Franklin said on, I, I believe it was Rash and Hummel's podcast, that you can't add bone genetically to these animals. So you make them older to have more bone maturity, therefore it's bigger, mm-hmm. which I believe that myself. So if you use that principle... And say you still want to get a lamb to 140, 145 pounds in the middle of, well, the 1st of August. That if that changes your dynamics as being a feed specialist on how you get to that approach. Which I know, oh, oh, I know in like absolutely. Indiana, that's been more common, but just Ohio specific here. I think... It changes how you feed them, and when you kind of let them go, and then you push. I think there's some guys that try to stun them hard early, and then hope they rebound and go. I'm not a big fan of that myself. But what 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 would your approach be as being the feed specialist? I mean, obviously, the best thing for you is to feed them as much as you can, as long as you can, but if you don't get the results, they're going to bounce to somebody else, probably. Yeah, yeah. Essentially, we. I mean, I spend a lot of time asking what the person's goals are to start with, and then you get into genetics and breed type and characteristics, and and all those questions feed into what we're going to try to end up doing, and uh, then progression is that. So as we feed those things for two to three weeks. What have they done and where have they been? And it's never been easier nowadays to, to keep track of livestock, whether it be a picture or video uh, of Snapchat. stuff. You know? Yeah, very yeah. simple, very easy. And, and I have a lot of customers on my phone that it's in every 30 to 45 days, they send me a picture or a video. And I can keep that progression and I can look exactly back of what we did and where we've been and where we want to be. Um, so it's, it's a lot easier uh, with that. Okay. Yeah, that mm-hmm. makes total sense to me. Yeah. All right. So, Eric, I'm going to kind of change some gears here, going back to Umbarger Feed here on the uh, – uh, my question is, how many states is Umbarger currently available in? Uh, we actually sell feed in about 37 states currently. Um, as far up uh, on the East Coast is Maine, uh, down into Florida, and uh, we cross the country uh, as far out as California. In some of those states, you guys probably only have like one salesman out in those states, or or uh, uh, I mean, no, we we really uh, like I said earlier, we really only have about four guys that do a sales job uh, for us. You've got myself, uh, we've got Kent Bennington in Indiana, uh, Justin Greenstead in Indiana, 
And then we've got Mason Edwards uh, works for us kind of part-time uh, basis out there in Iowa. And uh, so we spend a lot of time, uh, a lot of my time is on the phone with dealerships and different people and things like that. But we really rely on dealer training. Uh, we get our dealers trained up and, and uh, they kind of know what we need to do and what we recommend from there. But then, uh, like I said, we've got the greatest customers in the country that kind of know what they need and know what they want from there. And uh, if not, we're here to help them and serve them in any way possible. And I said, I, I did say salesmen, but I meant dealers. Uh, so in some states, yeah. you might only have one dealer or, or, uh, yeah. like, but when you come to like Ohio or, or your big uh, show stock states, I'm, I'm sure you've got quite a few um, in those yeah. states. Yeah. When I started, we probably had 20 some dealerships here in Ohio and, and likewise in Indiana. Um, and probably at last count, I'd be guessing if I had 65 or 70 dealers here in Ohio now, uh, that service, service all our counties. In what States are you guys looking for some more dealers? Uh, we're always opportunity for, for dealerships, uh, anywhere, as long as they fit, uh, with our criteria essentially. And, and we've got a need and a want, uh, in that area, essentially for somebody with feed. Uh, we're, we're very unique. We're trying to not stack dealerships on top of each other. Uh, we try to value our dealers as much as our family uh, because they are part of our team. Um, as great as our team is, we can deal it without our dealers. So we, we value them and, and when we set them up, we take time and, and uh, really do some research and, and make sure we're valuing with what we're going after. So if somebody is interested in becoming a dealer for Umbarger Feeds, uh, uh, what is their, uh, what do they need to do? Essentially, they'll just reach out to myself or uh, any of my counterparts. And uh, like I said earlier, we actually share those with each other. Uh, several years ago, we started a great Google sheet uh, of, of keeping track of all our dealership requests uh, all across the country. And, and that thing looks like a rainbow because we've got it color-coded with who does what. And, uh, you know, I'm just part of the process. And then it gets to the office and they do the final approval process. And uh, then uh, accounting gets a hold of it, and uh, the girls add it to the website, add it to their our route and order sheets and, and different things like that. So uh, it's a whole team process. Matt asked all the, like, office corporate questions. I, I'm curious. Uh, so your dealers, after after you've bagged and manufactured the feed, I know that mm -hmm. I've seen Umbarger trailers, semi-trailers in our neck of the woods. Yeah. Uh, do, do you guys try to deliver all your feed with in-house logistics? Or I should say in-house trucking. But mm -hmm. yet, so, obviously, you only have a, 14 hours to drive 11 hours as a semi-driver. Mm -hmm. So... Like some of those farther out ones, do you guys use common carriers? And then maybe if there's somebody that they're a newer, smaller dealer, you might use LTLs mm -hmm. like FedEx, UPS. Or How do you guys go about approaching that? Yeah, so uh, mainly in, in the Midwest here, uh, we'll say New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, on out through Iowa and, and some into Kansas and and down through Oklahoma, we will deliver a lot of that stuff on our own trucks. Uh, I want to say we're up to eight or nine drivers now. Uh, we run our own fleet of trucks and, and maintain them ourselves and, and things like that. Uh, but then there are those outlying areas that we, we've got to get feed to and customers, and that's uh, LTL logistics. And we've got one guy in-house that handles all of those shipments and, and uh, regimens and things like that of getting the the bill lading and all that laid out for our guys um, because all that feed has to be packed and wrapped and stacked and picked up and, and it goes to a, another terminal or a hub and gets delivered from there. But uh, we do that in Florida. Uh, all of our feed that goes to Georgia uh, essentially goes to a terminal down there and it's dispersed. A lot of our feed that goes out to Kansas, uh, Nebraska, and even into Oklahoma goes out to a terminal uh, and gets essentially dispersed from there. So, uh, that's part of part of a project I'm really glad I don't have to deal with. Uh, I always mm -hmm. get to do the fun part and sign them up and get them feed and answer the questions. Uh, but getting the feed there logistically some days can be a, a very big challenge. 
I thought maybe Jake was looking for a new driving gig. Oh, I mean, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, we're always up for more guys. So, so like you said, a terminal, that's somebody that you've, you guys have built a relationship with that warehouses the feed for the dealers to come and pick it up from there. No, actually, or... it's just went through uh, went through a trucking company. It, it goes down to their terminal. Okay. Uh, essentially, okay. we send a we send a full load, and then uh, those shipments are already pre packed uh, for a particular dealership, say in in Georgia or Florida, yep. and then it, it just goes on their truck from there and, and on their normal delivery route and goes out from there. I got you. That so, makes that makes yeah. a lot more sense. Well, Eric, it's uh, it's getting a little uh, far in the podcast here, and we got to start wrapping things up here. Uh, uh, just uh, a few things we'd like to know, and uh, all of uh, all of our listeners would like to know as well. Uh, maybe some uh, words of encouragement or advice for people in the agricultural community. Yeah, uh, it's been tremendous, guys. I, I really do appreciate the opportunity to, to come on with you guys, and and uh, hopefully somebody picks up something out of this and and uh, uh, you know is encouraged by what what my story was and where I've been, um, you know, and and I really didn't expect to be where I am today, and, and being an umbarger for 15 years now uh, has been a true blessing for for myself and my family and everybody else. But uh, you know, when I started this job, like I said, 15 years ago or so, they essentially gave me a phone and an old truck and and a book and said, go to Ohio and sell some feed. <laughs> and uh, I would say I was pretty naive to the feed selling business at that point, but uh, I took it and ran. And uh, I really wasn't afraid of anybody telling me no, because I had nowhere else to go. Uh, I needed a job and I had to get there. And so I, I really went and banged on doors and, and talked to people and laid on people in the industry that I knew. And, uh, you know, just I, I did have a lot of people tell me no over the years. And, and I used that as encouragement uh, not necessarily in a vindictive way, but by gosh, if if you're not going to sell my feet, I'm going to find somebody around the corner that is, and you're going to wish you had. And uh, I spent a lot of time doing that and, and driving the countryside and seeing people and, and really enjoyed it. So don't be afraid to go meet somebody, talk to somebody. Um, you know, these guys are all people, too. Uh, they all grew up where we did. Um, you know, a lot of these guys that I think are big heavy hitters and things like that are, are great friends of ours or great friends of the feed company. So it's really easy to go talk to them and, and have a great conversation um, by all means. And, and some of those guys will shock you and they'll call you for a piece of advice. And I'm like, well, why is this guy calling me? I, I look up to this guy. I've looked up to this guy for, for a long time and many years, but uh, it's been a very, very unique and humbling process uh, that we've went through. So just kind of blessed that, that we have the opportunity to do that. Um, so just don't be afraid to, to get out there and meet people and, uh, you know, put your face out there and, and have somebody not tell you no. But, uh, you know, as, as we, we end this thing and things like that, I, I got to show a lot of livestock. And a friend of mine always told me if, if, if you beat one person in class, uh, that was a victory. And, and just tell them, uh, look over and tell them thanks for coming so you weren't last. Um, so we always kind of encourage the kids to, you know, as you guys say, don't suck. Um, but, uh, just try to do better every time and, and get better at what you do every day. Love it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was Mr. Eric King with Umbarger Show Feed. Thank you, Eric, for coming on tonight. And as he said, don't be last and don't suck. <laughs>